Amen. Good morning to you. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at Hillside, and it is very, very good to see you. And Greg and Christy, what a joy to have you here. I, yeah, why don't you give them another all the way from Europe? And uh, anyway, I just like uh, Randy said, we're delighted to have you here. And I can't wait to get to know you, become your friend, along with all these other folks who are your friends. So uh, sometime after one of Jesus's most famous miracles, you could put it this way, one of his most famous feats of teleporting the party of the future into the present, which really is what Jesus' miracles were, the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men. After this, Jesus withdraws for prayer. And in Luke 9, 10 through 11, Luke tells us that just before this, Jesus had planned a spiritual retreat for his inner circle somewhere in the sticks outside the town of Bethsaida. And unfortunately for Jesus and his very, very tired disciples, the crowds get wind of it and they follow them there. Apparently, though, Jesus never took a boundaries seminar because when the crowds show up, uninvited, at Mission Springs, Bethsaida, or wherever they were, Jesus welcomes them, and he teaches them. And Luke tells us that he heals everybody who needs healing. And of course, as we just said, before the day is over, he will feed them all. Well, it's soon after this tremendous feeding miracle that Jesus finally gets some time to pray, and this is where our story begins, reading at verse 18. It says this, Now, it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So what do we have here? Again, Jesus is praying. He's talking to his father, and he's bathing in his father's favor, his presence and his love, just like we can. And his disciples are nearby. And apparently, he opens his eyes sort of suddenly, I think Luke is suggesting to us, and he pitches this question, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, the disciples give their answer. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Other people say, uh, you're one of the old prophets of old who's risen. Well, Jesus takes this in, and then he says, but what about you? Who do you guys think that I am? And this time, Peter speaks up for the whole group, and I kind of imagine with a confident smile, the Christ of God. You know, cue the band. This is a big moment in the story of Jesus. This is the first time in Jesus's public ministry that someone has correctly identified him as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And you might remember back in week one of this series, Galilee by Storm, we relived the story of Jesus calming the storm uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And in that story, 
After Jesus saves the disciples from sinking and drowning, the disciples are terrified. Possibly more terrified now after seeing Jesus' remarkable Yahweh-like power display, and they ask each other, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And the question here is not rhetorical. They don't know who he is. They can't make sense of him. And the confusion about Jesus' identity is something that hangs over his life up to this point, and Luke makes much of it. It's a theme. But here, finally, we get a breakthrough of sorts. The disciples recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, at verse 21, we get a surprise. Listen to what Luke says. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Whoa! Jesus fires up a bit on the disciples. Luke writes that he strictly charges them to tell this to no one. And Our sense of the tone that Jesus takes here with the disciples is enhanced when we consider that previously in the book of Luke, that same word translated strictly charged is translated rebuke. So what do we make of this unexpected rebuke that Jesus throws down on the disciples even after Peter answers correctly? And you probably know it's got to be that for the disciples, the penny of Jesus's particular style of messiahship still has not dropped. And that's why Jesus replies in the sharp manner that he does. We could imagine it this way. Here in verse 21, Jesus says to Peter and to the others what Inigo Montoya says to the Sicilian criminal Vizzini in The Princess Bride After about the fifth time, Vizzini says, do you remember? Inconceivable. Very good, Beth. Anyone remember Montoya's reply? He says, you'll keep using that word. I do not think you know what it means. Jesus' point is that Peter is saying the right word, Messiah. But he doesn't understand what it's going to mean for Jesus. And yes, Jesus is Israel's Messiah, but no, he's not going to be the kind of Messiah that Peter expects. Yes, Jesus is absolutely going to win the great battle against Satan and against darkness and all the powers of evil that corrupt every corner of God's good creation. But no, he is not going to do it by piercing evil through with a sword, rather like the Son of Man from the book of Daniel, who triumphs through suffering, he's going to win that battle, but he's going to win that battle by being pierced himself, by going down into the grave and then being raised to new, indestructible life. Well, then Jesus goes on, and here we get an earthquake. It was an earthquake for Jesus' first hearers, the people who were right there when he heard him say this, and it is an earthquake for us today. But to feel the shockwave, 
we've got to remember the context. Again, Jesus has just performed perhaps his most remarkable act of power up to this point. So here, like we've been doing all throughout this fall series, Galilee by Storm, we got to fire up the imaginations. we got to turn up the imagination dial. Remember, just before this scene, just before this scene, Jesus is out in the wilderness with 15,000 people. And as you know, the 5,000, that's only the men. It's getting cold. It's getting dark. The people are getting hungry. The kids are beginning to whimper. And the babies are beginning to wail. It's like 4 o'clock in the house when you have small children. Do you know what I'm talking about? You do. No one has any food. Actually, that's not quite right. John tells us in his telling of the story that one kid in the 15,000 has a sack lunch. And he's willing to share it. That's what Jesus has to work with. One kid's sack lunch. But rather than bemoaning what he doesn't have, Jesus thanks God for what he does have. One sack lunch. Five loaves, two fish, and a God for whom nothing is impossible. Well, Jesus takes the bread He breaks it, he slices the fish, and he begins to pass it out to the disciples so they can pass it out to the crowds. Now, imagine. Imagine what must have happened next. Suddenly, the groans of the hungry crowd turn into gasps of surprise, of delight, of amazement as dinner is served. And who knows, but maybe someone in one of those dinner groups lights a fire. And then maybe someone in another dinner group does the same. And imagine you're there. Take it in with your imagination. Imagine you're one of the disciples and you look out over that whole plain and what do you see? Blazing out of the dark night, 300 groups. Remember, Luke has told us that Jesus has already divided up the crowd. 300 groups of 50 happy, laughing people sitting around warm fire, feasting on fresh fish, talking and singing and marveling over the power and the goodness of this Jesus, this Jesus for whom no words of praise are adequate, all under the stars. Now, teleporting back to our story, imagine You're one of the disciples there with Jesus when he pops up from prayer. And now imagine that a day or two before, you were one of the people who experienced that food flash bomb miracle. A miracle that you know people will be talking about 2,000 years later, and of course they will because we are right now. And then it's at that moment Jesus tells you that he's going to suffer and he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. Can you imagine trying to take that in after what you just experienced of Jesus's power and tenderness and generosity? Well, what does Jesus say next? Let's keep reading. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And if you are one of the disciples hearing this, you are even more rocked at this moment. It's not just Jesus who has a rough road to tread. It's everyone who wants to stay with him, which includes you, at least you used to think. What does Jesus' teaching here in verse 23 mean for us? How are we to understand if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me? What does this mean? Several years ago, Allison and I were eating dinner with our two good friends, Andre and Steph Kime. And by the way, I have been praying, and the Hillside Prayer Team prayed yesterday in our Saturday morning meeting that God would send an Andre and Steph Kime to Hillside. And let me explain what I mean by that. Maybe eight years ago, Andre and Steph moved to Davis from Sydney, Australia, in order for Andre to begin a postdoc in bioengineering at UC Davis. And one Sunday, they dropped in at our old church, FBC Davis, and said in their charming Australian accents, we're here to love and to serve. And by the way, I want to tell you, I practiced that line with my best Australian accent, and it kept coming out like a bad John F. Kennedy. So I, I, I resisted. But love and serve, they did, with abandon at FBC for two years. And these FBC outsiders assumed the posture of FBC insiders, and they began serving by storm the people of FBC, inviting lonely people to their house for dinner, people who had been at FBC for 20 years, teaching Sunday school, serving at VBS, cooking meals for ministry events like our own Lynette Jenkins does and did for me just this past week, leading home groups. And Allison and I were two of the people they decided to be Jesus to in the two years that God gave them to be in Davis. And through their love, God carved deep lines in our hearts and so many other people at the church. And anyway, one night we're eating with them over this great lamb dinner that Andre made. And Andre told us that soon they were going to be visiting Zion National Park. And they were looking forward to it. But he was emphatic. And this got my attention because they were Aussies. And all people from Australia are tough hardy outdoor people. And they told me that they were going to be hiking in Angel's Landing, but they were not going to hike the Angel's Landing Trail. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And so he told me that Angel's Landing is maybe the most dangerous trail in America. And it involves traversing a knife edge only a few feet wide up a mountain with a thousand foot drops on each side of the trail and ascending it without falling and splattering on the rocks below requires holding on to a chain. I think Doug and Terry know what I'm talking about. Well, as soon as I got home, I Googled it. And since then, whenever I am in the strange mood to feel utter terror 
and the sixth sense is not on Amazon Prime video, I watch YouTube videos of people hiking Angel's Landing. You cannot believe this trail. Now, why do I bring it up? Here's why. Because preaching Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Preaching that passage is the pastoral equivalent of hiking Angel's Landing. There are a thousand foot drops on each side. Maybe 500, 5,000 foot drops on each side. And let me explain. On the one hand, in teaching this passage, trying to be true to it, I run the risk of turning us all into masochists, right? With no regard for ourselves, our needs, our margin, our life balance, giving everything to the point of becoming stumps, like the stump in the giving tree. Do you know this book? Yes, touching, right? Disturbing? Yes, yes. But can you see how easy it would be to fall off the angel's landing of this passage in that direction? And after all, Jesus tells us that discipleship requires that we take up our crosses every day. And on its face, this sounds like spiritual masochism. That's the 5,000-foot drop to the right. The problem is we can also drop off the other side as well. We can smother this passage which Jesus gave us in vague, gelatinous, spiritual cliches like, well, of course we know. It's all basically about grace, right? So moving along, nothing to see here in Luke 9. Ice cream, anyone, right? Can you see how easy it would be to fall off our biblical angel's landing in that direction? Well, we know intuitively neither of those options is acceptable. We know that in making sense of Jesus' words here, we need to somehow avoid those two extremes. And that's because we know that here in Luke 9.23, and it's talk about taking up the cross, which, by the way, comes up four different times in the Gospels, we are dealing with fundamental teaching that can't be tossed aside. But at the same time, we know that God's intention cannot be for us to draw no limits. After all, what is Sabbath? Like Stephen talked about in his great message back on October 17th, what's Sabbath other than some kind of limit, a barrier, a boundary for maintaining spiritual and emotional health? Well, friends, we're going to be exploring what taking up the cross daily means from many angles in the years ahead. We won't be able to avoid it as we look into Scripture. And of course, we're never going to settle on a final answer as this really is one of the most challenging questions of Christian living. But here's what I think. Luke 9.23, or the denying oneself, taking up the cross, and following Jesus, that triad, here's what I think it means at the least. It may mean more than this. I think it probably does. But here's what I think it means at the least, and this will be good for today. You ready? The decisive release of old priorities for the daily pursuit of Jesus. Let me say it again. What is Jesus calling for in Luke 9, 23? What's he calling us to do today as disciples of Jesus? Here's what. The decisive release of old priorities for the daily pursuit of Jesus. 
And that's essentially what I think it means to take up the cross. How do I arrive at that? How do I get there? History helps us. I learned from Joel Green, great scholar at Fuller Seminary, that in the Roman world, when prisoners were condemned to death by crucifixion, they were made to carry their own crosses to the place of execution. And of course, we know Jesus experienced this himself. Well, when that cross was placed on a prisoner's back, he knew that he was a goner. His life was over. Well, Jesus has turned this very grim picture into a metaphor, but actually it's not as grim as we might first think. You see, to follow him as his friend and student in the company of other believers, which is what a disciple is, learning his way with other people, it basically means that recognizing that our old life, our old life, is dead and gone. Our old life of pride, prejudice, lust, selfishness, laziness, excessive concern about money or status and possessions, careless and cutting racial remarks, that that old life is dead and gone, but then a whole new life of being with Jesus enjoying his friendship, learning his way, and serving his peaceful, salvific purposes in the world has begun. And as you can see, yes, that's a strenuous style of life, absolutely, but it's not grim. <laughs> it's certainly not masochistic, because after all, it swaps comparatively trivial things for life with Jesus, the source of all joy both now and forever. And for me, the decisive release of old priorities for the daily pursuit of Jesus, his friendship, his way, his company. You know what, for me, that's a manageable path up the mountain. And that's one that avoids the masochism on the right and the pay no mind on the left. Now, maybe you're thinking, maybe you're here today, you're just exploring Christianity, and if that's you, you're in the room or you're watching on the screen, we're so glad that you are. We want Hillside to be a place where people from every spiritual starting point can come and just explore what Christianity is all about, centers on Jesus. But maybe you're thinking something like this as you explore, you know, I still don't know about this. The decisive release of old priorities for the daily pursuit of Jesus, that still kind of sounds tough. And despite what you've said, I still think you might have dropped off the right side of the mountain. I can see you flying down. But what's the payoff for a life like this? What do we get out of it? Well, Jesus addresses this question. Look what he says in verse 24. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus answers the question. He tells us 
what the payoff is of the Luke 9.23 life. And you know what it is? Our lives. We get our lives. And first off, as he says plainly in these verses, we get our lives in the future. When Jesus returns, and about this reference to the day of judgment, which doesn't come up all the time, you know, here at Hillside, part of our identity is to be brave Bible readers. And we are not the kind of believers who shy away from Scripture, especially the hard parts, especially the hard parts about justice and sexuality and money. And as people who are serious about the word, we expect that sometimes God is going to say things to us in his word that might kind of bother us a bit or tweak us a bit. Otherwise, as my good friend back in Davis, Dr. Stanford Gibson used to say to our students over and over again, otherwise, if God's word never surprises us, our Christian worldview is probably just wish fulfillment, right? If God is who he says he is, he's probably going to say things sometimes that we need to adjust ourselves around, right? Well, as hillsiders, as covenanters, we are serious about the word of God. It is the foundation of our faith. Well, here we get a challenging bit of that word to reckon with. Jesus says here as clearly as he can, how we respond to him in this age determines how he responds to us on the big day. And this is not a rogue verse. Jesus says the same sort of thing in Luke chapter 12. He says the same thing in Matthew 10. He says the same thing in Mark 8. But it's not just our future lives that we preserve through discipleship that he empowers through his own spirit. We also get our lives now because we get Jesus. And after all, the decisive release of the old is, as Jesus says in verse 24, for Jesus' sake. We get Jesus. We get to be near him. We get to hear him when we come before him in prayer. We get to share in the work that he's doing as we follow him everywhere, to Germany, to places around here, wherever the hurt is, wherever the need is. And over and above that, we get protection And we get insulation from all the vain pursuits, all the gain the whole world pursuits that just always ruin people, (laughs) right? You know, anybody who's given her life to money or anyone who's given his life to status who's not miserable, (laughs) you know, candidly, Luke 9.23, the decisive release of old priorities for the daily pursuit of Jesus. You know what? To be candid with you, this is hillside. This is hillside. And I saw it two Saturdays back in the eyes of the people serving at our respite day. Under Natalie's leadership and Ed Colton's leadership, our service to families with children who have special needs, our first one in two years. Praise God. Hillside is full of people who are climbing Angel's Landing. I see it all the time. And managing to do so without tumbling off to the left or the right. But of course, we can always go further up and further on, right? 
The day is not here. The king has not returned yet. There's more time. And I got to thinking, you know, what if everyone here today, every hillsider, were to decide on one priority of the old life, just one thing from the old that we could just cast away in the interest of creating more space for the king, more space for interacting with him, feeling his love, more space for imitating him through practical service. And maybe that cast-off could be just as simple as just could start here, just deleting one time-wasting app on the phone. <laughs> just starting there. Maybe moving up a little bit. Maybe it could be thinking hard about our gifts, the needs of Hillside, the opportunities we have to serve, and maybe it could be maybe just looking ahead and limiting the number of weekends that we'll be away so that we can preserve a good number of weekends to be here and to invest in the lives of fellow hillsiders while we have time. Not eliminating all the weekends. We need rest, right? We need Sabbath. But maybe thinking it through. What new grace could flow into our church if we all did that? What new life could spring up in our workplaces or our schools? What new goodness could flow into our homes, our relationships? Do you know, two years ago, on a trip to Zion National Park, two either courageous or very foolish hillsiders climbed to the top of Angel's Landing? Do you know this? Allison and I were not the two. It was Randy and Joy Fishback. They did it. They made it. Thankfully, falling neither to the right nor to the left. And friends, when it comes to the Angel's Landing trail of Luke 9.23, the discipleship trail, the denying ourselves, the taking up the cross trail, the following Jesus trail, you know what? Just like Randy and Joy, we can reach the top two. And that's because taking up the cross daily, you know what it ultimately is? It's ultimately choosing Jesus. Choosing joy. Choosing our very lives now and in the great day to come. Let me pray for us. Father, we are serious here at Hillside about continuing to live into the gift of your son. And we realize now is the time to do what we've been doing, but to do it with ever greater seriousness of purpose, making the pursuit of your son, our king, the one who is coming, our highest priority. Show us today what we might let go in order to enlarge our space for him for interaction with him, for imitation of him, and not least of all, through Australian-style service <laughs> to our fellow hillsiders, to our spouses, to our neighbors, to the fellow classmates, to our fellow group members. And we thank you that because Jesus died for us and rose again and gave us his spirit, we can keep climbing. And we love you. And we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Some fun. 
As you can see, we have members of our prayer team here. In fact, the leaders of our prayer team. Floyd and Janet are here to pray for us. We've got a big week coming up. We are agents of the King with lots of opportunities and responsibilities. Some that will be a joy, some that will be a challenge. But we all have a full week. And we invite you to come up and to receive a blessing and a prayer for strength and a fresh measure of the Spirit. You're going to have to come fast because I'm going to use you. I'm going to have you pray for me first, okay? Unless Terry Knifing gets up here real fast, okay? And she's a hiker, and that's possible. Okay. Let me give you your benediction. Dear ones, may the decisive release of something old this week, may it be the occasion for something new some new possibility for interaction with Jesus, imitation of him for your good and for the good of everyone around you. God bless you. See you soon.